We've entitled this morning's message, Laying the Foundation. Probably, first of all, it sounds a little strange for a text like this. I also want to make a comment right away. The text that we are in this morning is probably, in my personal opinion, one of the most preferred texts of a, any preacher and also of those who profess faith in Christ and maybe even those who don't, that would they, the text that they would want to hear would be this one here. You've heard from me from the pulpit. There are many texts. There are several texts that we've come across that I think are texts that are avoided or not wanted to be preached upon. But I would venture to guess that this is probably one of the texts that most people want to preach on and want to talk about. This text dealing with love. Let me bring into perspective where we are and where we're going with this foundational information that I'm giving you here. We are in the upper room discourse. We are in the Lord Jesus Christ's farewell speech. He's only literally hours away from his crucifixion. And while things have begun, in a sense, as we started in chapter 13, things had already started for us. And we notice that chapter 13 through chapter 17 is a unit. And obviously, even by numbers, we're in verse 31. So something has transpired already in this unit of discussion, in this farewell speech, if you will, in this upper room discourse. And while it is true that Jesus Christ has already washed the disciples' feet, which will be important to our text, and that has transpired, and while it is also true that Jesus Christ has exposed the one that would betray him, which was our text last week, while that is true and that's, those things have already begun, it is my personal opinion that the actual farewell speech or the discourse that he gives to his disciples begins with this text right here, though those other things have transpired. His actual teaching begins right here in verse 31. And he does this by laying the foundation as I have. If this is the actual instruction from 31 forward to the end of chapter 17. This is the actual instruction, the actual discourse, the actual private teaching, if you will, that is going to go on to his disciples and that will carry on into our generation because the Lord Jesus Christ will be departing from this world scene as found in our context here. And he starts here by laying, as I said, this foundation. What do we mean foundation? It's very important. Like any structure, whether it be a physical structure like this building or a house or anything of that nature or a spiritual structure, doesn't matter. Whenever you're dealing with a structure, it is absolutely essential, we know, that the foundation be right, that the foundation be solid, that the foundation be perfectly aligned. For if not, you end up with the Tower of Pisa where it's bending. If not, you end up with a structure of bricks that end up falling down eventually. And you have no basis for that building to go up and be able to be relied upon. The whole structure will be affected if the foundation is not right. And I personally believe in verses 31 through 35, and most commentaries take it down through verse 38, but I'm just taking 31 through 35 
because I think 36 through 38 deals with an additional problem. But in verses 31 and 35, I believe the Lord is laying the foundation for everything that he is going to teach them in chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, whether that be by his prayer, by personal instruction directly to them, or whatever. I believe the whole foundation is laid right here in the verses that are before us. And the first foundational point, though it might be easily overlooked, I believe, is found in verse 31, just the first part of it. And as I have in your outline, he lays the foundation by addressing the true servants. In verse 31, he simply says these words, Therefore, this is based on someone that just left because he says, Therefore, when he had gone out, and I'll stop right there. That's the first foundational point. He's, he's identifying somebody who had just left. Who was that? Look at verse 26. We know who it is. Jew, uh, Jesus answered, the one of whom I shall dip the morsel and give it. So it, And so when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and he gave it to Judas, the son of Iscariot, verse 26. And if you look down at verse 30 where we ended last week, you see in verse 30, so after receiving the morsel, he, that is Judas Iscariot, went out immediately. And it was night. And so when you start into verse 31, it is very important before you get to verse 35, that everyone likes, 34 and 35, that we understand that Judas has left the scene. It was foundational. Why? Judas was an unbeliever. I mentioned last week the concept of repentance, and he went out and he was sorry. That was worldly sorrow. He was caught. It wasn't a repentance unto salvation that is necessary for a person to come to Christ. Judas Iscariot is the son of perdition. It would have been better, according to the Scriptures, had he never been born. There is absolutely no question Judas Iscariot is in a real place called hell. He's an unbeliever. He's a false disciple. He was a messenger of Satan. That is absolutely astounding when we hear those words. But it's important because the instruction that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to give is for the true disciples. It's not for the unbeliever. Outwardly, Judas Iscariot had enjoyed all the privileges of an apostle. Everything the other apostles had experienced and were given by privileges, he had. He walked with Jesus for three and a half years approximately, or three years. He knew all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything had been instructed to him. He even had the privilege of performing the miracles, apparently, that all the other disciples don't miss these points. He had all of the privileges. He knew all of the language. Even his own apostles or his fellow apostles thought that he was a true believer, and they never suspected him, as we saw last week, of being the one who would be the betrayer. It would be like having an audience like this and looking around and nobody could suspect the person next to them is not belonging to Christ. But he never really had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was looking for a deliverer. He was looking for deliverance from Rome, but never had his heart aligned with the things of God, and his heart been changed from the inside so that he was a believer in Jesus Christ. He was a false disciple. 
He was a false professor of faith. Why the separation then? Why is that important? Why is that foundational? Why had the Lord had to send him out before he starts instructing his disciples? It is foundational, folks. Why was that true? I'll tell you why right now. Because the teachings of the apostles and prophets are the basis of the foundation. Now, don't lose me here yet. We'll come back to Jesus Christ. But will be foundational for the church of Jesus Christ. What the apostles are going to teach are foundational to the church of Jesus Christ. They are going to be the ambassadors that will go ahead and represent Jesus Christ. They are going to be the witnesses that are sent forth by Jesus Christ into the world on which and out of which he is going to call his church based on their message. I would like you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to see that so you don't think it's just my personal opinion. In Ephesians chapter 2, those of you that were here at the time, I spent two years on these two verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19, and just the first part of verse 20 for right now. He says in verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now watch. Having been built on the foundation of what? Come on. The apostles and prophets. Foundational. What's he referring to? He's referring to their teachings. We'll come to the rest of the verse in a moment. We'll go back there. But foundational to the church and bringing people to Christ is going to be the teachings of the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New. Judas has nothing to do with that. In Acts chapter 1 and in verse 8, these 11 are going to be called, as well as the other true disciples, to be witnesses for Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I referred to that last week as well, verse 20, Paul will say that they are ambassadors for Christ. They are the ones that are called to give the gospel, not the unbeliever. And so foundational was to get Judas out of there because the teachings of the apostle were going to be foundational, and he was a false, basically, disciple. Judas has no part in this. Now, does that have application? Absolutely. There are many false teachers today. There are many false prophets. There will be many false messiahs. The Lord said that. There are false disciples there are those who profess faith in Christ. They know the language. They go to church. Sometimes they read their Bible, which a lot of Christians don't do. Sometimes they get involved in a lot of activity, and there's no depth, there's no heart, there's never been a transformation in the heart. They're false professions of faith. And they actually talk about another Jesus. Would you go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11? This is not the common message going out today. The common message going out today is if anybody professes faith in Christ, that's it. They must be a believer. Judas had all the benefits and he was a false teacher. 
or would have been had he gone forth and taught. He had to be out of this picture before Jesus Christ could give the instruction. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just notice verse 4. For if one comes and preaches, now notice this, another Jesus, whom we have not preached. There are many that are talking about their own Jesus. The Jesus that is going to bring them prosperity. The Jesus that is going to do this for them. The Jesus that is going to do that for them. The Jesus that they will attach to their life. And they know the language. They talk Jesus. They have verses of Scripture. But it's another Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. And this is what the Scriptures warn against. And notice what he says. Or you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different what? Gospel. Not the real good news, but the good news of prosperity. That is the prosperity gospel today. There are many that are professing faith in Christ that truly have not come to Christ internally. And I like to give that warning. Why? I would rather give you that warning and have you stand before Christ one day truly saved than stand before Christ having made a profession of faith and hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. And I personally believe there's a lot of professing Christians that are not real. Notice Galatians chapter 1. If you think Pastor Dan is strong this morning, how about Galatians 1? Maybe we should put this message on TV. Galatians chapter 1. All the TV said buttons will go off. Verse 8. Notice how Paul is strong. Even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, now notice, contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be a curse, basically doomed to hell, if you will, by just using the language. Verse 9. As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man or anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Anathema is to be pronounced on him. It's pretty strong. doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. And to put it very bluntly to you again, when you see Judas out of there, and that's foundational because they're going to be teaching the word of God, it also has application to us. We are not to join in with forces that are false to try to promote the cross of Jesus Christ. That is contrary to what's being taught today. The idea of the ecumenical movement is we all join in on a common cause. If you don't have Jesus Christ in the proper gospel, you don't have a common cause. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, I won't turn there. That's the passage that says... Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I'm not talking about some other thing, but you need, we need to separate from those who are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, whatever religion it is, when it comes to trying to advance the cause of Christ. And this is important. Judas would have no part in advancing the cause of Jesus Christ, and he could not begin to start teaching them even on the topic of love until he was out of the picture, because he was not going forth as part of the foundation for which would build the church of Jesus Christ. 
Only true believers can accurately claim the promises of God. Only true believers understand the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is in the word of God. Only true believers can be sent as part of the body of Christ to accomplish the things of God, not an unbeliever. Oh, God will use them for his purposes, of course. But that's not who he's called. So right away, as he, now Judas is out of the picture, the first foundational thing is that the unbeliever is gone. Second, we come to verses 30, the rest of verse 31, and right through verse 33. The second thing that I have in there is a foundational truth, is the departure of the master. In order for the disciples to carry on their work, the master has got to leave them. Let's read it, beginning in verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified, God, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, he will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. That's pretty difficult there, by the way. Uh, and by the way, five times he's using different forms of the word glorify, a glory. Okay, little children, I am with you. A little while longer you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews now, as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. What's he talking about? He's talking about his departure. He's talking about the cross. First thing I want to point out is this. The gospel is much more than the incarnation. Did you get that? We talk about Christmas and it's wonderful. It's coming soon. But the concept of Jesus Christ coming into the world and God so loving the world that he sent his only begotten son, if that's all you've got, you haven't got the whole gospel. The incarnation of God taking on the flesh is part of it. The gospel involves more than that, and that's foundational to the disciples. Jesus Christ has to go away. Why? His death is important. His burial is important. His resurrection is important. And his return is important. Without all of that, you don't have the gospel. They say, I don't know about that, Pastor Dan. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's got to depart. He's got to face the cross. You can't have salvation without the cross. You can't have salvation without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. What? That Christ died for our sins. Now watch this. According to the scriptures. And he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. What else? According to the scriptures. You see, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ includes his coming and taking on flesh, absolutely. But also his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And if you don't think that's important, go down to verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has not been risen from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection from the dead, watch this. Not even Christ has been risen. And if Christ has not been risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. See that? If there's no death, burial, and resurrection, there's nothing to believe. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, verse 15, because we testify against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. 
Did he get raised from the dead? Yes, get on to verse 20. But now Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. You see, without the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you haven't even got the whole gospel. You haven't even got the whole gospel. So when he says to them that he's departing, he's laying a foundation again. He's got to go to the cross. Their ministry would not come into full swing as apostles until Jesus Christ faced the cross and was resurrected and then left them in Acts chapter 1-8. Second aspect of this in verses 31 to 30, uh, through 33 is that Jesus Christ is the actual foundation stone. Go back with me to Ephesians chapter 2 again. Now we'll read the rest of that verse. Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 20. Having been built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets. I already told you what that is. Their teaching. Now watch. Christ Jesus himself being what? The cornerstone. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Getting you to move around your Bibles this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For no man can lay the, a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You see? So what's going on here in, in John chapter 13? He's laying the foundation. They're going to go forth, and their teaching is going to be the foundation. Judas has got to be out of the picture. Only those who belong to Christ really are the ones who can teach you the truth. Secondly, Jesus Christ has to go away. Why? Because he's got to face the cross. And in the cross he'll be glorified. We'll talk about that in just a second. But he's, he's the cornerstone. He's the one on which everything is built. All of the scriptures pointed to his coming. All of the scriptures pointed to his death and resurrection. All of the scriptures pointed to the Messiah and that is Jesus Christ. The place that he was born. Who he is. His genealogy. Every single aspect of it. And he's the basis of the gospel message. Judas had no part in it because he didn't believe it, and that's why he's gone. So Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the foundation, and the teaching of the apostles is foundational. And now I want you to go back to John chapter 13 because it talks about, as I said several times, the idea of glorifying. Let me make it as simple as I can for you. In those verses, what we see is Jesus Christ is going to go away. The apostles can't go with him yet. They will, by the way, and we'll get to that in just a second. But he is going to be glorified and the Father glorified in him. Where? At the cross of Jesus Christ. I will read this passage to you to help you to see it. Uh, you can just listen, but in Acts chapter 3, if you want to take the note on it, Acts chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 says this. Listen, here's what it says. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disavowed in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, the fact of which we are now witnesses." And what that is saying in there, it started, if you notice in verse 13, God glorified him. How? In the crucifixion. 
And so what Jesus Christ is talking about is his immediate glorification. It's now come. His hour is now here. We saw that back in chapter 12. The hour for Jesus Christ to go to the cross, he will be glorified. How is that? In going to the cross, his full obedience. But also, the Father is glorified in Christ, and he glorifies Christ. How is the Father glorified? Let me give it to you this way. His righteousness is seen. Go with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, please. In this gospel of Jesus Christ, we see not only is the Son glorified in going to the cross, but the Father is also glorified. And one glorifies the other. It's the total equality there as well. But in Romans chapter 1, look at verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Here's why you should not be ashamed either. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now watch verse 17. Explanation. A reason why it's that powerful. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see the righteousness of God revealed. That's why he's glorified. It demanded that a perfect sacrifice be given and you and I can't save ourselves. There is no one that can save themselves. Trying to be religious, trying to do good works. Good works are a wonderful thing. You would rather help someone across the street than throw them in front of a car. That's a good thing. Absolutely. You would rather give someone a drink of water than a drink of poison. That's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. But that doesn't gain access to heaven. All men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. It not only says that in Romans, it says it in Psalm 14. As God looked down from heaven, there's none righteous. What can we do? Nothing. That's why Jesus Christ came, the incarnation. He took on flesh to satisfy the perfect righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And the cross is before him. And his perfect obedience that we've been seeing throughout the gospel according to John is showing how he glorifies the Father and the Father is glorified in him. The Father announced it at his birth. He announced it uh, at his baptism. And he announced it again when he said the transfiguration, when he said that he would be glorified again and again. And we're going to see it again in chapter 17 when we get that far. So the unity and the glorification is seen in that God's righteous demands are met by the sacrifice of the Holy One. And the, the apostles have enjoyed his presence. Notice the affectionate term, by the way, in verse 33, little children. That's an interesting word. But let me just say this. It's real affectionate toward them as he refers to them as his little children. First John is abundant with this word. But uh, here he refers to them as little children, and they can't be with him yet. Are they going to be with him eventually? Yes. Look at verse 36 to get ahead of ourselves. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. And we'll deal with that when we get there. But later on, they will be in glory with him. They will also go through some of the sufferings, sufferings. So the first two foundational points are that we need to have a separation between believers and true believers in accomplishing the work of God. Secondly, Jesus Christ had to leave. He had to go to the cross in order for us to have the gospel message. There had to be a resurrection. 
He had to depart from them as much as they enjoyed his presence. Can you imagine being one of those apostles? Having walked the earth with the creator in the flesh? Having seen his miracles? Having benefited? Having sat down and eaten with him? Had his arm around you, if you will? Had all that experience? And then he says, I'm leaving. Why? i got to die. Why? It's not possible for you to go forth with a message. It's not possible for you to have salvation unless I go to the cross. And he's got to leave them. So he lays that foundation. And then he comes to their marching orders, if you will, verses 34 and 35, which is what you're all waiting for anyway. Verse 34 and 35, we see other foundational points. And he says this, A new commandment I give you, that ye love one another, even as I have loved you, that ye also have love one for another. By this, I'll come to verse 35 later. Let me just read verse 34. Love is not new, folks. Love is not new. The Old Testament was fulfilled with it. Where do you think you get the concept? It's in the book of Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God taught that in the Old Testament. The concept of love was not new to the disciples. It was not new. And tragically, I believe this is one of the very most, most difficult areas are the one that's destroying Christianity as well. What is it? This concept of love. There's so much confusion and endless problems that are created by it. And so it's going to be important that we understand what's said here. We have the concept, even among professing Christians, that all we need is love. Love, 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 love. That was a song that was sung by the Beatles, not by Jesus Christ or given to us that way. Listen, or the concept that whatever is, goes is okay. We just need to love one another. It doesn't matter what's going on. That is permeating professing Christianity today. Nothing negative. Don't talk negative at all. Don't deal with the passages that deal with sin. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about the justice of God. Just give them love. That's all over the teeth, he said. And if you haven't seen Olstein, it's just pouring out of his body. The whole concept of smiles and love and everything else. And you might not appreciate me naming names, but the bottom line is Jesus Christ did it. And the bottom line is that's not the love that Jesus Christ is talking about, as I will show you in a minute. And secondly, I believe it's the biggest weakness in fundamentalism. Why? Because they fail to show the love that they should. They talk it. They talk about it to somebody else in situations and fail to do it. We all do. And they're dogmatic uh, over doctrine and leave the concept of love totally out of the picture and think that's exactly what Phariseeism is, where everything's law, 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 and absolutely no love. And then the only time you talk about love is when it affects you, not anybody else. That's what we see throughout Christianity today. So how do we balance? What are we, what are we talking about here when he says love? Is it that we're just to have love like those who just want the ecumenical movement and you love everything, you overlook everything? Or is it the situation that you don't show the love that you really should be showing? Not at all. Neither one is correct. How do you do it? He tells you. Here's the new commandment. Not that you just love one another, but look at what he says. Even as I have loved you. 
That is how we are to love one another. As Christ has loved us. And let me read for you. You don't need to turn there. You can mark it down if you want. Ephesians chapter 5, in case you think this verse is isolated. In Ephesians chapter 5, listen to this. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. He doesn't stop there. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We are told to love one another. How? As Christ has loved us. Now that's something to think about because everybody has their own concept about what that is. How did Christ love us? Well, some of them are obvious. The first one that should be obvious to you in the text is what? He just wiped the disciples' feet. They were worried about who was the greatest. He was the master. And he sat down and washed their filthy feet. That's how he demonstrated his love. How else did he love? By going to the cross of Calvary. Absolutely. He did. By giving forgiveness of sins. Absolutely. Is that the only way that Jesus Christ loved and taught us love in the gospel accounts? I don't think so. Jesus' love was without hypocrisy. He didn't talk love and then demonstrate how mean he was. He didn't talk love and then gossip behind the scenes. He was without hypocrisy. His love always was in obedience to the Word of God. Always. Even in His coming. Even in His going to the cross. His love was always consistent with the Word of God. Don't you remember what He said in Matthew? You've been told this, 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 and this, and this by the disciples, but I say unto you, love your neighbor. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Forgive. Talk about that in a second. Love that Jesus Christ demonstrated, listen, rebuked false teachers. His love is demonstrated in Matthew 23. You hypocrites. You snakes. Oh, nobody wants to talk about that type of love. His love was such that he turned over the tables of the changes and said, you've turned my father's house into a house of merchandise. And it should have been a house of prayer. That was love. That's the love that Jesus Christ is commanding us to see as well. His love is seen when he turned around to Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan. That's love? Absolutely. That's the type of love that Jesus Christ had. Not just the cross, not just the forgiveness, but the boldness to say when things were wrong and to point it out. Why? Because he loved Peter. His love was compassionate. Yes, but his love also could look at Nicodemus and say, Nicodemus, 
you got to be born again. I don't care who you are, what your position is. You're the teacher in Israel. And unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. That's love. Do you think you're loving somebody when you walk up to them and they say they're not saved? And you're saying, well, you know, I know you don't do everything right, but God's love. And No, you're the best thing in the world you can do to him is say, you know what, you're right, you're a sinner. What? Yeah. You're going to end up in hell if you don't come to Jesus Christ for salvation. That's love. It wasn't deemed love when I went to my mother's house for several years and witnessed the tears when I would sit down with my mother who was involved religiously and say to her week after week, Wednesday night after Wednesday night, Mom, you've got to trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Religion's not going to do it or you won't be in heaven. I said that because I loved her. And by God's grace, she came to salvation before she died. It would have done me no good to go to her and say, oh, Mom, I know, I'm your son, you know. Uh, you know, I can't tell you this. So yeah, you're right. That's not love. Love is a means by which we do things, in which we, it's the mechanism. We always need to speak the truth in love. Love is found when Paul rebuked Peter in Galatians and said to Peter, you're driving people down the wrong path. Love was found when Paul and Mark uh, had to separate. That's love. You might not see it that way. Love is found when in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I won't turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul turned around and says, you know what, get together as an assembly and turn that person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Look at it on your own, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's love. You see, there's a balance Love is not just mushy, gushy, gushy, overlooking everything. It always works with truth. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, it says, speaking the truth in love, that is how we ought to grow up. We ought to love the world as Christ loved the world with that same type of love. And we are separated by truth. They go together. Let me give you the practical aspects, then we'll turn, if we get some time, to 1 Corinthians 13 and a couple other passages. What does love look like for believers with one another? You know, let me back up a step. I personally believe that in many cases it's true that as unbelievers look at the Christian church, they don't want things, anything to do with it because they don't see the love of Christ that should be there. You know what they see? People fighting, and by the way, I have nobody in mind. People fighting in the nursery about whose rules are right and not right and the way I like to do things or you don't like to do things. Are they fighting in the kitchen? Are they fighting in the choir? Are they fighting in the orchestra? Are they fighting in the, in the men's ministry? Are they fighting in the women's ministry? Are they fighting in the church? I don't like this. Did you hear what this one did or that one did or this one did? And there's no love whatsoever. All it is is my way. Or everything's got to be done my way. Or I didn't like this. Or this was done wrong. And all they're doing is talking about one another. And the unsaved is looking at this and saying, well, that's love? Yes, 
the unsaved are looking at those who are fighting about doctrine, and I'm not talking about the fundamentals of the Scriptures. No, I can't witness to this guy. Why? Because every time they see you, you're fighting with somebody. That's why. How does love look? How about this one? Love looks this way. Forgive others as Christ forgave you. You just put into realm, I just named off ministries. It could be the teen ministry, whatever. I had no ministry in mind in particular. But do we see that? That we forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us? Oh, we'll say that we forgive one another, and five months later we'll start talking about what somebody did to us. That's not forgiveness. That's a joke. We can't forgive one another. That's why Christians don't get along. It's one of the biggest items. Christ forgave us at the cross. He showed his love. How did he demonstrate his love? Listen to this. Romans chapter 5, you look at it. Verses, I think it's 6, 8, and 10. When we were helpless, Christ died for us. When we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, Christ died for us. That's how he's forgiven us. We make enemies of one another. We're quick to talk about the problems. You know, go with me to 1 Corinthians 13. We talk about these verses on love. We know what they are. And we're all guilty of violating them. First Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, let me, for the sake of time, jump down to verse 4. How about we put our own test here? Love is patient. Am I patient? Love is kind. Is not jealous. We're not jealous when other people succeed. does not brag and is not arrogant. Yeah, me, yeah, you. Does not act unbecomingly. Wow, watch the next one. Love does not seek its own. It's not interested in its own. It's interested in the body of Christ. It's interested in the church of Jesus Christ as a whole. It's interested in the Fellowship Bible Church, if that's my local assembly. It's not so interested in my own little thing that I can't have the time to push a button because it doesn't interest me. I'm more concerned about the benefit of the whole than my own. That verse applies, those two verses on the side wall. is not easily provoked, hmm, does not provoke, does not seek its own. Wow, watch the next one. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Let me share something with you. Growing up as a young boy with relatives and so forth, one of the things that was a puzzle to me while I was unsaved as a young boy was how in the world relatives could treat one another the way I saw it. They wouldn't talk to one another. 
They remembered things, and you'd hear it. When you, 20 years ago, did this, and I'm looking at it, 20 years ago. You know what the sad thing is? Christians are doing the same thing. I can't sit next to that person. You know what they said to me 13 years ago? You know what that person did to me? You know what they said about me? You know how they misrepresented me? My friend, that's not love. It's not love when I do it, and it's not love when you do it. And you are setting yourself up, or I am setting myself up, for a big fall when we think that we're loving as Christ loved and we can't get along and we're holding grudges. I personally believe that one of the biggest problems with love is forgiveness, the lack thereof. The lack thereof. Oh, love will be seen in transporting people, giving meals, helping when people move, praying for others. That's another way you see love, absolutely. But it gets into the real nitty-gritty that when I'm working, let's say with the teens, I'll pick on them, and I'm working with the teens, and the director takes it, and he's doing certain things, and I'm not used to that. You know, I can say, you know, for the betterment of Christ, I see what God's doing. I can eat my pride, and I can talk to that person, but I can go along with that. Yeah, when someone, uh, I don't know, the orchestra's next to me, when someone plays an instrument or they want to do this, I might not like to do that, but you know what? For the betterment of the whole and the testimony of Christ, I can learn to shut my mouth. That's the practical. We're sanctified by the truth. That's John 17. I won't have time to turn there. Verses 15 to 19. The Lord didn't take us out of the world. He left us in the world so that we could be just like he was, just like he's talking about love here. We had a love as Christ loved. That's the way he loved. He saw the people that were sinning, and he had compassion on them. He had no compassion on those who knew the truth and wouldn't follow through on it. We ought to judge righteous judgment. That's part of loving one another as Christ did. Christ made sure, and I didn't go on in 1 Corinthians, but isn't that what it says? We rejoice in the truth. Love bears all things. Are we bearing all things? Are we barely putting up with all things? Love believes all things. I have, in the years of my ministry, I've seen this, and it's in many, many areas, but allow me the grace, if you will, this morning. But I hear Christians say that. You know, what really happened? That's believing all things? Pastor Dan, I know you did this, but what, what, what really did you do? What? What are you talking about? That's believing all things? And don't Christians operate that way? Don't you ever operate that way? Don't tell me you don't. You do. We do. We believe all things. We hope all things. We're not a fool. We don't stick our head in the ground. We endure all things. This is the concept of what love looks like if it's in my life. If it's in my life, I'm looking at the betterment of Christ. I'm looking at the betterment of the gospel. And I want you to go back to John chapter 13 because I have to wrap it up. He says we are to love one another, but not just any gushy love, as Christ has loved us. That's the command. By the way, husbands, so you know that this whole message is convicting to me as well. We ought to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Try that one on for size. 
You think you love your wife? Are you loving her as Christ loved the church, willing to lay your life down for her? Not just in death, but every single day? You ought to be thankful you got a meal on the table rather than complain about it. That again? If you had just done the dishes, I got you the dishwasher. How about helping her out with them? I don't want to get off on a whole tangent on that. You know the point. The point is that's the way we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church, laid himself. This type of love, we know what it is. It's sacrificial love. That's what it is. It's self-sacrificing love. It's one that always, listen, always seeks the best for others, not for itself. That's the type of love that Christ had. That's the way we're to love one another. And in closing, just look at John 13 for a second, verse 35. This is how we are to be identified with the world. With the world. Remember Moses? How am I going to know that they'll accept me? Who do I say sent me? Just tell them I am sent thee. Right? The apostles. How would we know who the real apostles are? Miracles that they would do in the proclamation of the message. How are we to know who the real disciples are? Here it is. That we love one another as Christ has loved us. That's what he's dealing with. They'll know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What love? The love that he talked about in verse 34. That's consistent with the word of God. This is obedient to God. That is how the world is to identify us. Not by whether we go to church or we don't go to church. Not by whether we wear a brown tie or don't wear a brown tie. Not by whether we got flip-flops on our feet or we got shoes on our feet. Not by the type of car that we use, but by the way we treat one another, folks. Let's try that on. How are we treating one another? Not just when we're with one another, with our lips behind the scenes, with our promotion of the things of God, with our concern with the overall picture of what God's doing as opposed to my personal gain. How is it even possible to love one another as Christ has loved us? Well, let me give you three quick verses and I'll close. I won't turn there. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. We have to be filled with the Spirit of God. And I'll tell you this. You won't get filled with the Spirit of God if you don't read the Word of God because God uses His Word and He uses that truth within you. It'll be the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. And it'll also be this, and I'll read this one to you. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says this. Hope does not disappoint. Now listen. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts, through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. That love that God has expected of them, because in chapter 14 when he gets there, he's going to talk to them in chapter 16 as well. You can't do this unless I send the Holy Spirit. And he comes and indwells you and he will guide you in all truth. He will guide you to the way that you should go. It takes us yielding to the Spirit of God. What do we do if we're a believer today? and haven't been doing too well with this love, confess it 
and let the Spirit of God control your life and get back to doing what we should be doing. What about if you're an unbeliever? This is foundational. You can't love this way. Why? How can you possibly love as Christ loved us when you haven't benefited from his love yet? His love is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He satisfied the justice and righteousness for sin. It was a substitutionary uh, sacrifice. And by placing your faith in the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ, you can have forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. But just like Judas had to get out, all the other religions of the world and all the other things that are professed in the world will amount to a hill of beans. There's not several ways to go up a mountain. There's only one way. That's coming in chapter 14. And that way is through Jesus Christ. Believe on him and you shall be saved. Right there in the pew. Don't wait for tomorrow. You have no guarantee that tomorrow will come. Trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. You'll experience the love of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Then, and only then, will you be able to love others that way. Let's close. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you that before the foundation of the world you loved us. I thank you and praise you that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he took on flesh, but I thank you that the gospel message doesn't end there. That he went to the cross, that he bore the penalty of sin, satisfied your righteousness, glorified you, and you were glorified in him, and you glorified him. And Father, he was buried, rose from the dead. Father, right now, is seated at thy right hand. And Father, if there be any in here that have not come to Christ, help them to see that the only salvation provided is through Jesus Christ and help them to place their faith in him today. Father, for those of us who are believers, this topic of love is one that's so confused. It's so messed up. But Father, we have to admit that we all fail. We fail to love others as Christ has loved us. Help us to see the connection between truth, boldness, and compassion. Father, it is beyond us as a human being, but Father, made possible because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Help us to yield to the Spirit of God. Oh, Father, forgive us where we have lacked love for one another. Might it be seen in every committee, in every program, in every service, in everything that we do here at Fellowship Bible Church. Start with me. Oh, Father, help us to go through 1 Corinthians 13 and understand what that love looks like. Help us to bear one another's burdens. Help us to think the best. Help us, Father, to apply the things that we've seen in Jesus Christ. And help us to start with our forgiveness, one for another, as Christ has forgiven us. And Father, we pray that your name would be exalted and your testimony will go forth from here as a shining light that will beam throughout this community as it's seen and the people identify us by our love, not for the world, but for one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.